takeaway from that section that was also, and this is probably one of my favorite parts of the book. He talked about the importance of making a fresh start and he listed out 86 days of the year when you can make a fresh start. It was like every first of the month, every Monday. I mean, these are all um, options for people. And I thought, what? It was just this beautiful way of if you need a fresh start, here are 86 opportunities that you can claim that to be. I think about that in practice, consulting or doing things where people are motivated to make change. And this just seemed to be like an extra level of motivation for them. Like here's an opportunity to do that. Again, really simple concept, but but powerful as well. Successful brands are rooted in purpose and driven by the potential to make a positive impact on their customers. Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose with Amy Austin. Each week, Amy brings you practical advice to embrace the power of purpose in all aspects of your business and transform it into the central storyline for your branding and marketing strategies. On this week's Pursuit of Purpose, I am taking a little different approach to an interview and I'm going to share a conversation between Holly Adams and myself about a book that we both read, and that book is Daniel Pink's When. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to just have a discussion about what we took away from the book, what we think is important for you all to know, and maybe it will inspire you to pick up a copy of it. So thank you, Holly, for for taking this little journey or experiment with me in terms of having a book discussion on the show. Amy, I'm super excited to be here. Holly likes to read and read business books, and that's all I read anymore is business books. So when she shared, I think it was back in December, the stack of books picture that she had been reading, I commented on a couple of them, and we just started a dialogue back and forth and said, you know, this would be fun. Let's have a book discussion on the podcast. And so here we are. The book, When, is, and I have a quote here from Daniel Pink. We all know that timing is everything. Trouble is, we don't know much about timing itself. And that is what he tackles in the book, When. He talks about all of the different subtle ways that timing is more scientific than what we often give it credit for. Would you agree with that, Holly? I would. Um, Mr. Pink has a lot of uh, data to support his claims and lots of interesting uh, takeaways. From definitely, it. definitely. So overall, did you like the book? What were your initial thoughts? I did like the book. I would compare his style to um, Adam Grant or Malcolm Gladwell, if you've read any of his books. A little bit of storytelling kind of weaved in, but lots of data. I'll say he doesn't necessarily tell you what to think, but he poses some great questions. And have you thought about it this way? Or here are the assumptions that we make about timing, our day, our life. Are those good assumptions? Should we think differently about how we go about our day and the timing of such? So yeah, good thought-provoking uh, material. Yeah, I would agree with that. For me, it was... It was a book that took me much longer to read than I anticipated it would. And Holly can attest to that because I sent her a couple of notes saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm not done with this yet. And 
and even tried to make the pledge to her that I was going to be finished by the end of one week, and I totally missed that deadline too. And I think in reflecting on why it took me so much longer to read this one is because of the fact that he does have so much data in it. There's every chapter has so much to be able to process and and think through that I just felt like I needed a day or two between reading each chapter before I could move on to the next one. There was just a lot to be able to process. I think that's a good point for for our listeners is that it's not something that you're just going to pick up and not be able to put down for the day or the weekend. It's something that it it is borderline textbookish in terms of how the material is presented and what's presented. I think your experience is probably really important to share that there probably does need to be some processing time in between chapters or in between concepts or ideas, which is a little bit different than, you know, maybe some of the other authors that that are complete storytellers and, you know, use the use of a fable or something like that. So to, to, so to manage those expectations, I think is good. One of the things that he starts off talking about is this concept of the lark the owl, and what he calls the third bird. And I actually did a little bit of a Google search and I came up with another another premise of this where they, instead of calling it a third bird, they call it a hummingbird. Okay. And that idea is that we all have these peaks, you know, where we are the most productive. And then we have this this lull time, or he calls it a trough. And then we have this rebound it's kind of that time when we're we're almost back to where our most productive time is, but we're not quite there because he makes the point that just because we have this knowledge doesn't mean that we can perform at the same level consistently throughout the entire day. That there is our circadian rhythms really influence that. I've always heard that, but I really appreciated the additional detail and and science behind why that is. And so I'm curious, Holly, are you a lark or are you an owl or a hummingbird? <laughs> that is a great question. And an honest, my honest answer is, I don't know. You know, he talks about documenting behavior, or observing behavior during your free days when you don't have activities or the schedule that you can just kind of allow things to happen naturally and then understand what that is. And, and quite frankly, and maybe a little bit um, embarrassingly, I don't necessarily have ever a free day or multiple free days in a row to be able to understand what, what I might be. I'm just, you know, a working mom right now with kiddos and activities and lots going on. So I don't know. I, I think that's a, it's an interesting question. And I think looking back at different times, I would say, I've adjusted based on what my schedule was. So for example, as a student, as a grad student, most of my classes were in the evening. So that would have been, you know, shifted to very, you know, very late at night, probably mm -hmm. would have been my, you know, my peak time. So I don't know, is the short, is the short answer. <laughs> so yeah. one thing I did come across in refreshing my mind about this section of the book was he talks about that the majority of the population actually falls into that third bird or hummingbird space where where our productivity times really do kind of shift 
and are, you know, more maybe late morning or early afternoon as opposed to that earlier time that the the larks are more productive. So for those of you who haven't kind of researched this or don't know exactly what we're talking about, there's three questions that you need to ask yourself to be able to kind of determine where you fall. The first question is, what time do you usually go to sleep? Second question is, what time do you usually wake up? And the third is, what is the middle of those two times? So that is, what is your midpoint of sleep? For instance, if you typically fall asleep around 11.30 and wake up at 7.30 a.m., your midpoint then is at 3.30 a.m. And from there, you, I believe, and Holly, if you can find this, you add seven hours to that midpoint, and that is your your peak productivity time. So if it was 3.30, that'd be 10.30 in the morning. And I think that kind of matches up because I also listened to an interview with Daniel Pink yesterday on the On Leadership uh, podcast, which is the Franklin Covey show that's hosted by Scott Miller. And they used Scott as an example. And he goes to bed very early, gets up very early, and they determined, obviously, that he was a lark. But they also then talked about that his peak time is much earlier than what most people's are because it might be that like 7, 8 a.m. time frame. I think for me, I do think I fall into that third bird because I don't go to bed super late on a regular occasion, but I, I do go to bed later than somebody who would be a lark. You know, I am not somebody that's gonna just pop out of bed at six in the morning and and be ready to go. That's that's not me. That's never been me. And as I was telling Holly before we started recording this, I stayed up ridiculously late last night working on something because I find that I actually write better in the evenings. And so I was working on writing some web copy and I kept going until I was finished. You know, so it was 1 a.m. when I went to bed. <laughs> I was going to ask if you adjust then your work responsibilities if you can based on but based on that information when I can I definitely do Mm -hmm. you know I find that most afternoons mid-afternoon is when I feel like I have the most productive streak and can be the most focused on what it is that I'm doing and so I, I have a feeling that probably is when my when my peak is and then I start to kind of hit that I'm exhausted or I need this break, um, what he would call it the trough, by 4.30 or 5 o'clock, sometimes a little later than that. And then by about 9 o'clock again, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. Let's, you know, I can get some more done. And honestly, it was 9 o'clock or after before I started working on writing that text last night. You know, that's a really interesting um, concept. Number one, as like a, what about our surgeons and the people that are, you know, doing kind of life, uh, life threatening stuff, but also um, wondering about the impact of COVID and working from home and how that's potentially adjusted some schedules and can people uh, contribute differently based on the flexibility that they may have now. To your point about the flexibility of working at home, I do think that we have the ability to be able to adjust our circadian rhythms. As we create more of a habit of doing this, I think that our circadian rhythms adjust to to accommodate for that. 
And to your point about the the surgeons and the people in healthcare that are doing more the you know the life saving, he talks about that there's research that shows there are more more medical errors happen in the afternoon, more hand washing drops off in the afternoon during that kind of low period when they've started to get tired and and then they come back up again in the afternoon. And so in this in one of the interviews I listened to with him, he used the example of his daughter needed to have her wisdom teeth taken out. And he said, I'm going to make sure that she has one of the first appointments of the day because I do not want the afternoon appointments where the risk of an error is greater. He said, now, if I was just going in to have my teeth cleaned, I would absolutely do that in the afternoon because it's not something that is as critical for them to be sharp. They will still be sharp and on top of what they're doing, but maybe not as much as what they are right away in the morning. And I thought that that was a really interesting shift of way to think about that. Yeah. Unless they have a surgeon like you, Amy, then. (laughs) Well, let's say we don't want to have a surgeon like Amy because I'm not trained. (laughs) But yes. Okay, lots of assumptions there. Yeah. (laughs) But you're right. If there is somebody, and I think those are probably like, maybe that's why trauma surgeons go into that because they are somebody who works at all different times of the day. And so maybe they do have that ability to be more in their peak in an overnight shift mm-hmm. as opposed to being in their peak during, you know, what we would consider to be a normal a normal work shift. The other thing that he mentioned in this podcast that I found really fascinating too was that when we think about when we schedule meetings, if a meeting that you know is going to be important is added to your schedule during a time that you recognize as being either your trough or your lower priority, your lower productivity time, prepare for it in the morning when you have your peak time and make a checklist of all the things that you need to make sure to cover or the things that you need to be able to ask about, you know, whatever it is that you need to do, because then you can have that checklist and it was produced during your peak time to remind you of what needs to be done when you are in either that that low point of your energy or in that rebound time frame. He said that will help you at least increase, not to back to the level of the peak, but at least get you back closer to it. And I thought that was a great tip because I think so many of us end up in afternoon meetings that maybe are not at our optimal time. Mm -hmm. And if we are in tune enough with who we are and how we work, that might be a really beneficial tip to implement moving forward. Yeah, if there was one thing I would say is the most important takeaway from the book would be very basic an an awareness around these types of of issues. And that's it. Maybe we've never thought about it before. Maybe we've thought about it, but didn't really know why we felt that way. So I think that is kind of the one key takeaway is just a notch up in self-awareness about your own, own style or your own preferences and what you can do about it. Exactly. The other thing that I remember him talking a lot about, too, was the benefit of understanding when a teen has their peak times and using that as 
as a starting point of how schools base their curriculum. And he talked about, you know, that most teens are larks. And so starting, starting their day off in junior high and high school at a slightly later time is going to be more beneficial for them. But it also equally as beneficial is to make sure that you put those courses where they need to be the most productive earlier in the in their schedule. So putting algebra and science and a foreign language at the beginning of the day and putting those things where they need to be more creative, like art or industrial tech or choir or band in the mid to the end of the day. And as I kind of thought about that and looked at how that maps out to what my daughter's schedule is for school, and she's a, she's in eighth grade. It's exactly what her schedule is like. Oh, good. All of the, the core classes are all in the beginning of the day. And then the ones that are, you know, have more of a creative edge or her PE class and the choir and all of that, that's at the end of the day or in the oh, afternoons. Perfect. And so it, it works nicely. And then we're lucky enough that in our school district, our secondary schools actually start an hour after our elementary schools do from a lot of people I know is kind of contrary to what most other school districts do, but ours does it. And I think it's been tremendously beneficial for, at least for my daughter who likes to sleep. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. The other thing that, that I wanted to ask you about is he talks about the importance of taking an afternoon nap or a nappuccino. Do you remember that section of the book? I do. What is what do you think about that idea? Do you do you think that could be beneficial for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I should rephrase the question. Is it realistic? And in okay. an ideal world, would it be beneficial? <laughs> you know, I Oh gosh, mom, I'm sorry to call you out if you if you listen to this, but my mom she mastered that power nap that he talked about. She would do that and I remember kind of making fun of her, you know, growing up doing that, but it was so helpful. And obviously now there's data to support, you know, why she did that. I have not gotten into that routine and I just don't see myself doing that. I respect the data and I respect the theory behind it. Um, practically, I don't know how, how that might work in my world. How about you? Are you, and, and we probably have the, the flexibility potentially to even do that. So I think there are days when I definitely benefit from not necessarily truly taking a nap, but just disconnecting for 15 or 20 minutes, maybe 30, where I just walk away from my desk. I walk away from, you know, the what's what's really draining my brain and take a few moments to be able to just take that breather. You know, sometimes it might be that like I, I work in, my office is in the basement, so I will go upstairs and I might turn the TV on and, and just watch something, you know, that's somewhat mindless for 30 minutes as a means to just kind of clear the headspace. And then when I do, when I come back to work, I do notice that I have a bit more energy and more focus to be able to to get back in and power through whatever it is I'm doing. So while I don't truly take a nap, I do believe there are days when when I do take advantage of that idea of just removing myself for a short period of time. And even in the class that I'm teaching right now, I make sure that 
I give them a 30 minute break because it's a four hour class, four days a week. So it's, it's brutal in terms of the timing. And I can tell when they're starting to hit that, like, okay, I'm done. So we take a 30 minute break and I, I won't let them stay in the room. I'm like, you need to get up. You need to walk around. You need to have a change of scenery. It's nice outside now. Go outside, get a breath of fresh air, come back in. And then we'll, you know, we'll power through the last hour and a half of class. And yeah, and related to the nap, not, not the nap concept, but he also talks about vigilant breaks too. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a really um, important concept to consider too. So it is that level of, of a detachment, you know, kind of a forced reevaluation. So again, another valuable um, takeaway from that is to incorporate that. So good to hear that you already, already do that. Yeah, I don't think it certainly wasn't a conscious decision of, you know, but now I can put a name to it. I, I won't call it a nappuccino because he calls <laughs> it nappuccino because he, he sees the benefit of taking a nap and then having a having some caffeine, right? Either right before or right after. I can't remember. Right which before, because I remember thinking you're supposed to drink coffee, take a nap, and then, you know, you'll have this amazing refreshed feeling after and think, well, maybe I could try that. Yeah. I mean, and for me, I don't drink caffeine. So the caffeine part doesn't do anything for me other than maybe give me a migraine headache because I'm one of those. <laughs> that... Do you have anything that really was a favorite for you or have we talked about it already one of the things that really um stuck out to me was he called them the niners people that ran marathons oh yes yeah i wrote oh gosh i probably won't be able to find it quickly here but i wrote this is me on the side again i didn't purposefully do that i don't i, I don't think but i ran my first marathon when i was when i was 39. really mm -hmm. so take a minute to tell yeah to describe what the Niners are. What do, what's the significance of that? He dedicates a section of the book to beginnings. And he talks about kind of when people generally make changes and the concept of running a marathon. That was an example, but making like significant life changes or reaching a significant goal tends to happen at these landmarks in life. I mean, he talks about um, when to get married, when to get a divorce, when to switch jobs. So I thought that was really, really something I hadn't thought about before. Mm -hmm. So maybe again, to your point, putting a name to it was like, oh, well, that's a really powerful concept then. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he also say that the majority of people who do make these big changes do them in the ninth year of a decade of their life? So at 29, at 39, at 49, yeah, that they decide at that year that they want to do something before they hit the next milestone yes. age. Yes. Another takeaway from that section that was also, and this is probably one of my favorite parts of the book. He talked about the importance of making a fresh start and he listed out 86 days of the year when you can make a fresh start. It was like every first of the month, every Monday. I mean, these are all um, options for people. And I thought, what? It was just this beautiful way of, if you need a fresh start, here are 86 opportunities that you can claim that to be. I think about that, 
in practice consulting or doing things where people are motivated to make change. And this just seemed to be like an extra level of motivation for them. Like here's an opportunity to do that. Again, really simple concept, but, but powerful as well. Yes. I, I liked that too, because it was, if you're somebody who feels like you need a, some type of a milestone it, that you need to wait until you hit some some day of significance like the first of the month or the first day of the week or whatever in order to be able to start something fresh having that list of 86 or however many it was does give you a perspective of there's a lot of other ways that i could be thinking about this mm-hmm. instead of thinking oh i need i need to wait until the first of the month to do that well no maybe you don't right maybe there is another way you can can really look at that so on the flip side of that he also talked about the importance of endings one of the things I found kind of fascinating about that is if you've been in a restaurant and the end of the meal, if something goes wrong at the end of the meal, if it's, you know, you get the wrong dessert or you get, you know, your bill is messed up somehow or whatever, that has such a profound influence on how you view the entire interaction. Even if everything leading up to it was the best meal you'd ever had. If something goes wrong in that last piece of that interaction, you are going to remember that and might be more inclined to write a bad review than if you just had had a great experience all the way through, because then you may not even go back and write a review. Right, right. And so I thought that was an interesting thing, because for me, the work that I do with my clients, we talk about creating you know, a positive customer experience and thinking ahead and anticipating what may or may not happen and how can you always make sure that you're ending on this positive note. For me, it reinforced why it is so important to be thinking and anticipating those highs and lows and know, okay, here's my response so that I can course correct and get it back into that positive ending rather than a a lackluster or disappointing ending. I thought that was a a good point that had some practical ties back to the work that I do. And I think it's also in that section, he talks about the importance of kind of checking in um, middle of the project. I thought that was a good takeaway as well. Um, More of a practical kind of business aspect that we, our tendency to procrastinate projects is real. And so if we can have a midpoint check-in that sometimes serves as motivation. Um, Yes. That was like, like, oh, some of the longer term projects, we should automatically just schedule a mid-project check-in and that will be an indicator. Hey, we're halfway through. Are we halfway done? You know, we're halfway through the time. Are we halfway done from a progress perspective? So just little, neat little things like Mm -hmm. to take away. Definitely. So is there anything in the book that really just kind of failed to resonate with you or that you... You walked away from reading a chapter thinking, I don't get where this fits, or I don't see how I would apply this. Is there anything like that that stood out for you? I would say the section on syncing maybe didn't resonate as much as as the other sections did. We talked about, you know, it's it's a great story about a food delivery system that kind of works automatically and without a lot of there's know, no documentation. Just, right. That, yes. Documentation. Yeah. It just kind of happens. Again, interesting story. I don't know 
that I took anything away from that to relate it to what I do or, or how I work. Yeah. How about you? I think the same for me. I, I read it and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I, I, I don't understand how they all can just seamlessly sync up together without having any kind of tracking system to it. But I really, I struggled with figuring out what was my key takeaway from that section or that chapter as well. I will say it, it ended though, again, the importance of endings, obviously he knows what he's doing. It ended on such a positive note though, in terms of highlighting a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. And I thought, oh, Amy needs to yes. know, talk about this for her yep. podcast. So it was a beautiful way to end that story and then find relevance for, for what we do as well. Right. Yeah. I appreciated that in terms of, you know, when we are doing things that are fulfilling a greater purpose for us, we will, we will find the best way to accomplish those tasks mm -hmm. and we will find the best way for our timing our peak performance times, our beginnings, our endings, all of what he talked about to be able to fit and serve that purpose. I agree. I didn't expect that at the end. And I was like, huh, well, okay. I like this. This, this, this kind of brought everything back around to me. Was there anything else that you found surprising at all in the book? I think his, some of his anecdotes and maybe just coming off of the NCAA basketball tournament, some of his stories around, you know, what the score is at halftime and how that indicate, I mean, those little things are yes. so interesting to me um, because we have, we live in a date in a data driven world now. So we have all of that stuff that we can say, Hey, I feel this way, or this is kind of what I'm thinking, or there's intuition around it, or it's a gut, but it's like, no, here it is. Here's, here's the data from the last, you know, however many years of NCAA turn. I mean, so little things like that are, you know, they're fascinating really. Right. So did you look at the two championship games, the men's and the women's, and did their theory hold true on this one? Were oh, they, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. Because it has to do with if they were behind in at the end of the half, they tended to lose. Yeah, it was like was the, that was, it was, it was like the, per, the team that was down at halftime tends to have an advantage, but it's only within a certain range of points. So right. like, you know, if you're down by, let's just say 20, the odds aren't in your favor, but I think it's like less than five or something like that. Maybe it's only, it's even less than that. But again, that stuff is just. That was interesting. And, and I was reading that section right as the tournaments were getting going. And I thought to myself, oh, I need to pay more attention to these. And then I forgot. Is there anything that is, that's been kind of lingering for you since you finished? I mean, cause you finished reading the book a good month and a half ago, well, probably. <laughs> Yes, that's how long it took me to read. But is there something that that you found that even though you haven't been you hadn't read it for a while that you just kept like maybe it kept popping up of examples of concepts that he'd shared? Was there anything like that for you? I would say I definitely feel more validation around how I'm able to plan my day. I, I guess I've always had that I've noticed, hey, I'm, I'm more productive or these tasks tend to be easier at this time. And I think that that 
has really been validated since then. Like, like we talked about, like I had, you know, you have those feelings and you know that in your gut, but then here's some data to support why that is. Um, and also the potential to make adjustments when we need to, you know, cause we can't always just, Hey, it's not my most productive time. I'm not going to do that right now, but maybe some tricks and tips around how to make those adjustments or how to be more productive or do those types of things. So, yeah. And he offers, you know, additional reading and resources. It's always extra value added when, you know, you invest the time in a book and to learn more about the author when they can do things like that. Right. I think that's really important. Yeah. I think for me, the the thing that really kind of stuck with me was was the whole idea of the lark and the owl and the the third bird and really paying attention to when I am the most productive and being more aware of those, mm-hmm. you know, and since I read that chapter, I have found myself being more in tune with, okay, I just really had this burst of productivity or I accomplished a lot right now. So what was going on? What time did I go to bed last night? Is this representative of that peak for me? Or is this time now representative of the rebound for me? And how do those two look differently? Should I be doing podcast interviews in the morning during my peak time? Or can I equally do them in the afternoon during that rebound time? Because there is, it is a creative process to have a conversation with someone as well. And that's one of the things that he talks about as being important is to do your creative work during the the rebound time and any analytical type work that you need to do during that peak time. I've found myself really kind of thinking through those. And to your point, I do really appreciate in the book at the end of every chapter, his sections on here are things that you can do. And some of them are really clearly mapped out of, review this, take these notes, take the, you know, step through these things in order to be able to do a shift in whatever task it is that he's recommending. And I appreciated that because it did help me take some of those more complex timing discussions and see how I could actually apply it practically. It does speak to the different ways that we process information too. You know, here's, here's a way to read it and soak it in that way and then, you know, take it practically and apply it. I don't know if you saw too, he has another book coming out in early 2022, it says, and it's about regret, the emotion of regret. Really? So his web, yeah. His website right now has a survey. He's collecting data on what people regret. And so it has this, well, it's like a globe and you can click on, like, you can go to the state of Iowa And there are some demographics and uh, listings, I guess, if you know other way to say it is uh, you can see what a six-year-old female in Iowa regrets right now. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. So check that out if you, if you have a minute and are interested. I will, I will check that out. He has written so many books. Another one of his that has been on my list to read for a while is To Sell as Human. And I think that just from what I've heard about it, I think that that book could be really interesting as well. The general premise, as I understand it, not having read it, but just have heard him speak about it a couple of times, is the idea that we are all naturally, we're selling every day. We just don't call it selling. But when you put the label of selling onto something, we then make it harder. So how Mm -hmm. can we back out of that, that labeling 
that puts it into a negative perspective because really all we are doing is building relationships and having conversations and offering assistance. Yeah, I haven't read that one either, Amy. The only other one I've read of his is Drive. To wrap this up, who would you say could could benefit from reading this book? I mean, is there someone, maybe not an actual name of an individual, but is there a type of person that you can think of that you would recommend this book to? I would say if you've read, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's work or Adam Grant's work, or even, you know, other work by Daniel Pink, and you like that type of data-driven individual insight garnering uh, type of material, I would say this book is for you. It's not a, you know, pick it up and read it. can't put it down in an, in a weekend type of book. It's not that type of content, but it's someone who is curious about themselves and are driven to, uh, you know, learn more about themselves and the adjustments that they can make on their own. I would agree with what you said. I also think that the person that really kind of just geeks out on the idea of things that seem to be just coincidental, there is some rational reasoning behind why things happen the way they do. I think that's probably what I liked about it is because there is an element of me that really, like, I just, like, really? This is how this works? I don't, you know, didn't have any idea. I think the struggle that I had with it was just because it was so, there was so much that I did need to read a chapter and set it aside and then come back and read another chapter and set it aside and kind of think through all of those things. But I definitely would recommend it. And thank you for asking to talk about it. I love this stuff and I love having someone like you to to do that with. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Thank you so much, Holly, for your time and attention today. If you want to let my listeners know how they can find you or where they could follow you on a social channel or anything like that, please feel free to do that. And I will link them into the show notes as well. Um, Probably the easiest is my website. Um, Pretty simple, hollyadamsconsulting.com. Um, You can find email, phone, um, and all the social media platform information there as well. Great. Thanks so much, Holly. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, it's Amy. Does this episode have you wondering if you know your brand as well as you could? Maybe you're thinking, how can I have more clarity around my business purpose and its mission, vision, and values? Or what drives my brand personality and how does that impact my business? First, I want you to know you are not alone. I see this a lot. It is easy to jump headfirst into developing marketing tactics, thinking you can just figure out the rest as you go. But there comes a time when you need to hit that pause button and get really clear on what your brand stands for and how you make your target audience the central character in your brand story. If you're thinking, this sounds so familiar, then you and I should have a chat about clearly defining your brand and story. Just head over to amyaustinmarketing.com and send me a note. I hope to speak with you soon. This has been the Pursuit of Purpose podcast presented by Austin Marketing. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. 
Head over to amyaustinmarketing.com for links and resources mentioned in today's show, as well as ways to subscribe and connect with Amy. Thanks for listening.